0: Ayo, artists and musicians.
1: To us?
0: Yeah, do you want your own vinyl records?
1: Yeah, but I can't order a thousand of them. Or wait like a year to get them. Yeah, we're going on tour in two months.
0: Check out our friends lathecuts.com. They'll make you vinyl singles in quantities as small as 50 copies, and as quickly as three or four weeks.
1: Get out of here.
0: You heard me right. All their pricing is a la carte, And they can help you pick a package that fits your budget.
1: Okay, who we talk to about this?
0: You need to email my buddy Mike. His address is lathecuts at yahoo.com. And if you mention low profile, you'll get a 10% overrun on your order.
1: So if I order 50 weapons?
0: Mike's gonna send you 55.
1: If I order 75, I guess you would get 82 and a half?
0: Something like that. Remember, you gotta mention low profile to get that deal, and it won't be around forever.
1: Will we start again?
0: That's lathecuts at yahoo.com. Custom made records in small quantities Mention low profile to get a 10% overrun on your order
1: And email me now
2: Hello This is Henry from Amstrapries.com Bastard and Gun Outfit in Claremont, California. I listen to this show because it's non-mainstream, non-corporate, outside of industry. Support at Patreon forward slash Low Profile. Tell your friends about the show and visit LowProfilePodcast.com to hear more.
0: Thanks to Henry Barnes for that introduction. This is the Season 3 finale of Low Profile with Markley Morrison, the podcast that stands at least six feet away from popular music. I'm your ever-loving host, Markley, and before we get to today's featured guest, I thought this would be a good chance to clue you in a little bit about what's in store for Season 4, which will be starting in early 2021. My wife is bringing a baby boy into our family pretty soon. And I'm going to be taking a little time off from running this show so I can spend some more time with my family. So I'll be hosting a few episodes here and there, but for the first time on Low Profile, I'm going to have a few friends I trust take over the show for the most part. Regular listeners are going to hear some familiar voices, mostly musicians, flipping the script and assuming the hosting duties. And I'm really looking forward to participating as a listener and helping out on the production and editing stuff as needed. And no spoilers here, but there's a very intriguing buffet of artists on the menu, so definitely stay tuned. And speaking of intriguing artists, today's episode is on the band Lavender Country, who recorded the world's first gay-themed country album in Seattle back in 1973. Now back then, if you weren't part of the gay community, it was highly unlikely that you would be hip to this record. The group initially disbanded in 1976, and then Patrick Haggerty, the band's founder, committed himself to fathering his two children, all the while being a prominent voice in the gay rights movement, where he met his husband, J.B. This episode was recorded on location at their home in Bremerton, Washington. Engineer Miles and I drove up there from Olympia, as well as Jack Habegger, who helped co-host this episode. And Patrick invited his bandmate, Jack Moriarty, who plays multiple instruments in the current version of the band. They're even going to play you some songs, too, but first, here's a quick taste of their self-titled album. This song is called Come Out Singing.
3: Waking up to say hip hip hooray, I'm glad I'm gay. Can't repress my happiness ever since I tried your way. Here and greet the sun, cause time just begun, so come on, let's tumble in
0: the hay. The interview you're about to hear has been edited, but there's a lot more great stories than could fit in one episode, like how Patrick and J.B. met and their work with the ACT UP organization. If you want to hear the raw, unabridged conversation with Lavender Country, it's on lowprofilepodcast.com. Alright, let's dig in.
4: So is this just audio? Yeah, yeah, this is
0: just audio. Oh, cool. But you look great.
4: <laughs> I could have worn my fucking house coat, man. <laughs>
0: we should have warned you. You're hearing Patrick Haggerty of the band Lavender Country. They are legendary. They've had just sort of a renewal in their story in the last decade or so. We are also joined here by two people named Jack. One the of them is my esteemed co-host for the day. Hello. And one of them is a current member of the current iteration of Lavender Country. Jack number two, hello. <laughs> um, so, Jack, can you tell me how you came to be involved with this project? and uh, your history with Lavender Country?
2: Yeah, uh, it's a pretty long history. I mean, um, I've been part of Lavender Country since I was 14. That's when the uh, revival of Lavender Country started, was about 2014. And uh, I've been playing music with Patrick since I was, for as long as I can remember, I was probably five or six, and he taught me how to play guitar. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've known Patrick for the longest time. He's just a a good family friend and uh when lavender country got picked up again he was I was one of the first people he came to to uh you know ask to be involved and uh yeah we've been running together for quite a while awesome
0: and patrick i understand that you have a fair amount of involvement with lavender country
4: <laughs> i i do <laughs> um i'm patrick hayride And I'm the lead singer-songwriter for the original Lavender Country in 1973. And the most amazing part of the story is that I lived long enough to be sitting here. Um, I'm now 76 um, and still doing Lavender Country. Lavender Country was a flash in the pan in 1973 when we made it. And it lasted till about 1976, and then gay country was absurd in 1973, never mind Marxist gay country. Um, so I had a whole long life that didn't have anything to do with Lavender Country, um, mostly as a political activist. Mm -hmm. Like being a member of several socialist parties my whole life, Um, like the anti-apartheid movement, like the Coalition Against the Police Precinct in Seattle in 1989, like running for office with three members of the Nation of Islam twice on a black gay unity platform, like uh, a lot of activism in uh, the gay movement. And um, I did a lot of work in the black community in the 80s. Um, And I'm a parent. I was busy raising two kids. Lavender Country was completely dead. When we made Lavender Country, there were a lot of radicals in the gay movement. But by 1978, the Democratic Party had taken over the gay movement. Wow. and Lavender country was flatlined, as were most radicals. Um, all of us were radicals. Anybody who came out in 1969 had to be a radical. Um, th- that was a given. And Democratic Party queers rose to the forefront
0: and shoveled us to the sidelines. And you weren't looking for a candidate. You were just looking for justice in general. In, indeed. Yeah. Um,
4: <clears throat> when I ran for office with the folks from the Nation of Islam, I, I, we knew it was, we weren't going to win. Um, that wasn't the why we did it. We did it to make our point. But I had a whole complete, very full, very active, very rich, rewarding life while Lavender Country was dead. It was quite a surprise to me when Lavender Country came back to life.
0: But it was, you guys were on the fringes to begin with because you had a limited reach as far as being socially acceptable in that era. Um, uh, yeah, we,
4: we did have a, a limited reach. Um, we made, one of the beauties of Lavender Country was we knew it had no commercial value when we made it. And we knew nobody was going to buy it um, except us. And by us, I mean Stonewall activists. Where were
0: you living at the time? In Seattle.
4: Okay. I was in Seattle pretty much this whole time. There were three beauties to it that contributed to the Lavender Country story. One, why did I choose country? Well, I can give you all kinds of reasons why, you know, three chords and the truth and country music is the is the genre that allows you to be tell a story and be expressive and blah blah. blah. But that's all bullshit. The real truth is, I didn't know how to play anything except country. So that's why I chose country because I didn't know anything else. Well,
0: did you listen to country? regularly Yeah, I grew up on country.
4: You know, with. Kitty Wells and Hank Williams and Patsy Klein and that whole crew mm. and that was I am a country kid. I grew up on a tenant dairy farm with my mom and dad and ten brothers and sisters in a three room three bedroom house and Cozy. we were poor and we went barefoot and blah 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 blah. the and dolly got nothing on me, nothing All right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I grew up that way and um, lived in a redneck, rough log town and, you know, the full catastrophe of sure. country. Um, so that's why I chose country. Because um, you were living it. It was all I knew, man. <laughs> yeah.
3: There's nothing left but hope in your weary sexist roles time to trade them old pjs for a goodwill negligee you all come out come out my dears to lavender country you all come out and make yourselves to hold it don't matter here who you love or what you wear cause we don't
0: thing that really makes that album stand out uh, up against other things of that era is the sort of like the prominence of that flourishing piano sound that uh, your pianist had in there. Nobody was doing that in country music. It, it, It Stylistically more along the lines of like George Winston or something. You know, it wasn't honky tonk piano. It was like very expressive
4: well that that gets that gets, that that gets me into michael carr um Michael Carr didn't grow up country but he was very working class and um, michael Carr was a a jew uh, a, and quite an activist jew and um Michael also lived a very long life and was um a radical activist, politically he was my comrade, and yeah. still is. Um, Eve Morris was uh, an, a- uh, an activist lesbian, very good vocalist. She played fiddle, but it was classical fiddle, and she'd never played country before. Right. And it showed a little bit in the album that mm-hmm. right? she wasn't trained country fiddle. She had a, she had a beautiful voice, you probably
0: noticed. I have noticed. Yeah. yeah.
4: She, she was ve- really great. <laughs> Eve was also a Jew, um, so there were two Jews in in the Lavender Country conglomeration. Um, there are a lot of Jews in country music. Yeah, um, that's true. They have, uh, right? You, you probably know yourself. Sure. Yeah. Well, you yeah. Said yeah. You're in the Kinky Friedman tradition. Yeah, yeah. The, the Jews have been very active in country music from Absolutely. the from the beginning. Hey, very the nice. Jews went to Alabama and learned how to do it. And and there's a very rich, deep connection there that a lot of people don't understand. But um, Michael and Eve were not the first Jews in country music. They might have been the first out queer Jews in country music. Um, And finally, Robert Hammerstrom, the lead guitar player. Mm. Robert was not gay. He grew up in eastern Washington, way up in a town called Medellin Falls, which is a tiny little burg up on the Canadian border, near the Idaho border. His mother was a dance freak, and she drove him every weekend, 100 miles, one way, to Spokane, to take dance lessons, and uh, before Robert Hammerstrom got into Lavender Country, he was a ballerina uh, for the San Francisco Ballet Company for wow. several years. So no, he wasn't. Um, he wasn't gay, but his ballerina experience. <laughs> <laughs> he got a pass. They gave him a pass, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And um, Robert Hammerstrom is still with me and um, plays guitar in Lavender Country now. And he produced your most recent album, right? Yes, yes. And he has a studio in his home. And um, our most recent album, Blackberry Rose, was recorded at Hammerstrom's house. So um, that's the story of of who who made Lavender Country. Me and Michael and Robert Hammerstrom and Eve. Um, you might have you might have noticed that there's not a drum on the eleven original Lavender Country band, and there's not a bass either. You know, I barely noticed because it—you you guys did the trick. Well, um, there's a reason that that there was there's not a bass and a drum in Lavender Country. Uh, and the reason is, I didn't know you're supposed to have a bass and a drum in a band. I didn't know that. All right. <laughs> That's a Good reason. I just yeah. ran into. into Three other people who happened to, you know, play music and said, "Come on, help me make this album." But I didn't have any formal training, and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And in a lot of ways, it shows. Um, but in a lot of ways, it gives a charm
0: to the album. It definitely, it, it definitely gives it a charm. Now. So how did it uh, turn into a record? Had you guys been performing um, for a while before you decided to make the record? Or did you make a record and decide to become performers? No,
4: it was more organic than that. And the important thing about making Lavender Country was, and this is like critical, the community of, Stonewall activists in Seattle made Lavender Country, produced Lavender Country, came up with the money to make Lavender Country, located the musicians for me, and also the community helped write the songs in that I would go into the building where we were doing the gay movement and we'd be people sitting around and organizing and. organizing and doing and I go well what should I write a song about you guys and they would tell me mm. right write a song about this write about write a song about being in the closet georgie pie write georgie a song pie. about institutionalized depression of of homosexuals. homosexuals so the trilogy write a song about you know working class and gay connections and back in the closet again and write a song about sexual alienation and stranger. I was fed the topics by the movement. The movement told me what to write about.
0: Uh, About the Waltz & Will Trilogy, are are those stories that uh, you gleaned from Everything happening or were they, they are.
4: stories? They in? are real stories. Okay. Waltz and Will, the, the guy who got sent to the mental institution.
1: Waltz and
3: Will was soft and sweet. The way he waltzed was to iffy feet. For a psychiatrist to think was fit. So they said, hey son, we think we should sneak you a slug. A raw manhood, the state hospital's just the place to get one. Now they call him up, we're sickie.
4: Guys, that was me. That was me. And my, and my trip to the mental institution. I went to Western State Hospital, branded as sick. Um, in 1967, I was having a real hard time with it. I'd been kicked out of the Peace Corps for being gay. It was a, that was a real heartbreak for me in a, many, many ways. And uh, it threw me into a tailspin. And one thing led to another, and I ended up at Western State Hospital. Walsing Will is me, ta-da! Wow. <laughs> yeah, right. It happened to me. And the, um, the story about the people in prison... That's a, that's a real story, and <clears throat> the, the guy who got murdered the last, that was more of, of a composite story about our conflicts with the police, mm-hmm. um, but many of us were murdered under similar circumstances, and of course, it's not so prevalent now maybe, but at the time, Um, many gay men were murdered in sexually compromising situations. And I had more than one friend um, murdered in the early 70s. So, yeah, the reason that the trilogy is so raw and real is because it's raw and real. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: People just... Hating what they don't understand. Yeah, yeah.
4: It's a very rich and uh, sad um, part of our history, and still is mm-hmm.
0: um, in a lot of places. So, what kind of places was the band setting up uh, live we, in those days? We play.
4: We played almost exclusively gay liberation events. If there was a symposium for social workers or mental health workers Mm. um, that maybe lasted a day long, then there'd be a Lavender Country show for that. Um, Lavender Country played the first gay pride in Seattle. And the first officially approved gay pride. When was that? 1974. And the city of Seattle actually did bless our parade and gave it official sanction. And we had it at Seattle Center. And, you know, where there's 575 to 775,000 people who show up for gay pride now. Yeah. Well, that year in 1974... When Lavender Country played for Gay Pride, there were like four hundred people, and we were thrilled. were was
1: like, oh my god! That's a 400 lot of gay people, people at Gay Pride.
4: Oh wow! This is over the top. We made it. We made it. Yeah. Just to you know, like put it in perspective. Sure. And then Lavender Country played again at Seattle Center and. 2014, 2015, where there were like 750,000 people. And we played in the same place.
0: (laughs) Did you guys ever play to the wrong crowd? Do you have like a worst show story? No. No?
4: Uh, All the shows we were ever invited to play were in a a gay liberation context. Um, Lavender Country played maybe... Twenty shows before it died. Um, We ran out. We did. We sold the records. We pressed a thousand and sold them. And then there were a lot of needs for money in in the gay community at that time, and Mm -hmm. repressing Lavender Country wasn't at the top of the priority. Sure. And we'd pretty much come to a,
0: the end of our run. Did you hear any stories from people whose oh, lives yes. you touched?
4: Uh, many. And most of them were very moving.
0: Did you save any of them?
4: Um, no, I don't have any of the letters. But I've had communication with people across the country. Um, you don't know how many times I've heard—I buy your, la- your lavender country in 1976, and I was living in, you know, Podunk, Indiana—and you saved my life, you, man, you saved my life. I've heard life-saving stories. We, we save the lives of a lot of kids. I mean, I was in St. Louis, and a young trans person named Joss Barton came up to me after the, after the Lavender Country Show. She said, I was going to kill myself tonight, but my friend talked me to come to a Lavender Country Show before I did, and now I'm not going to kill myself, yeah, yeah, just a few years ago. Wow. And it turned out Joss was a fabulous poet and a pretty good singer. So I said, well, Joss, if you're not going to kill yourself, you might as well do a Lavender Country Show with me. <laughs> and uh, and we've done that a couple, two or three times. Wow.
0: That's
4: I guess this music is serving its purpose. I guess so. Yeah. It's
0: uh, it's sort of a form of evangelism in a way.
4: <laughs> it is. It is.
0: I had Yeah, I had a thought about that that I was thinking about. Um, oh, yeah, please. Is that on, on both of your records, you have a lot of songs that are very biting and very political and very dark. But at the same time, you have lots of songs of joy, lots of happy songs and parodies. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the importance of joy as part of a movement of social change. Well, a
4: lot of it comes from my Marxism. And the, the bottom line of, of that is, you, you, can, you can't make a revolution on despair. You have to have hope. Well, that's one thing that we found, that we found out in this recent election cycle, right? Sure. Was without hope, we never would have won this election. Imagine if Stacia Abrams had been filled with despair when she lost her race for governor in Georgia. But she wasn't. She was was full of vinegar and pissed off anger and hope to turn things around. And she and her crew managed to register 100,000 new voters. And they won the election for Biden. That's what I'm talking about. You, you can't do social change if you're depressed.
3: I'm yearning for blue skies and your big blue eyes of Gypsy John. Returning, will you be returning, Gypsy John?
4: You have to have hope in your heart, um, but you have to sing about the guts too. You have to sing the pain and tell tell the story of the oppression.
0: Yeah, you don't want to withhold the truth,
4: right? You have to. Have hope in the face of, of the truth. So, and
0: then just forty years, lavender country is not a thought in your head anymore.
4: Right, right. It wasn't, and um, I and when I was raising my children, mm-hmm. in the eighties and in uh, nineties, um, I wasn't doing lavender country. Right. I was. Me- Are you here, JB? Yes, dear. (laughs) I was with my husband for three years before he even knew I made Lavender Country. And we went over to (laughs) one of my friends' house, and my friend uh, said to JB, Oh, did you know Patrick made an album?
0: (laughs) It's good to have something in your back pocket, though, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
4: it turned out to be. But it's just an expression of how dead Lavender Country was. Dead, dead, dead. And then I moved from Seattle, and I met a blues harmonica harp player from South Chicago, a blues guy. And we got together and um, formed a little band called Memory Lane Songs. And we started singing to old people in Kitsap County We played for 14 years, 100 shows a year. We were very busy. Yeah, And I was um, thrilled after 40 years to be able to sing again. It was like, whoa, what an honor and privilege. I finally am far enough away from Lavender Country, and nobody knows that I made it. I can sing Hank Williams and Patsy Cline to these old people who love it. So that's what I was doing. And somebody put Lavender Country on YouTube. And a music affectionado named uh, Jeremy Cargill went, oh my God, what is this? And he found an old used vinyl from 1973. And realized what it was and realized its historical significance and took it to a label called Paradise of Bachelors. Sounds like a gay label, but it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And my phone rang and it was Brendan from Paradise of Bachelors. And he said, hi, I'm Brendan from Paradise, of Bachelors, and we want to reissue Lavender Country. And I didn't believe a goddamn word that was coming out of his mouth. But I was like, on on the 1% chance that this is real, I'll play along. And then Brendan said, well, we're going to send you an advance. And I went, oh, yeah, right, you know. The Virgin Mary is coming out of a cloud tomorrow, too, right? And I went out to the mailbox, and there was a $300 check there. And I took it to the credit union, and I gave it to the woman who was working the window. And I said, this check's probably not any good. And she came back to the desk, and... She had three $100 bills in her hand and she said, it cleared.
0: The check is good. And is that when you knew?
4: That's when I I knew. In the parking lot of the credit union, I went, oh my God, somebody in the world actually thinks that Lavender Country is worth $300. Somebody actually thinks it's worth $300. Lost my mind, man, I lost my mind.
0: So at that point, you'd already been working with Jack here for a number of years, uh, right around the time of this this reissue. Hmm. At what point did you realize, well, I've got to bring him on board?
4: Jack's a very special story. Hi, mom. (laughs) Jack's mom, Lori. You can say hi. Hi,
1: hey.
4: I met Jack in utero when I met Lori, and she was pregnant with Jack. When Jack was about four, he was so cute. You, Jack? Oh, my God. We have a video of this. You've seen it. I've seen right? this video, right? It's the on
1: YouTube,
4: unfortunately. No. There it is. <laughs> We stood Jack on a chair so he could be eye level with me. And I played guitar, and Jack sang Blue Moon of Kentucky. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, it's a great song. Um and he could hardly pronounce the words, but he could sing on
0: key. Isn't it just <laughs> Isn't they, right? I guess that's one of the perils of being born in the twenty first century. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> it's all uh, um
4: and um then um then I taught Jack guitar for like a year and a half. I won't, Jack will never say this out loud because he's too modest, but I'll say it. He's a fucking prodigy, okay? And I went to Jack's parents and I said, I want Jack in Lavender Country, but we need to talk because there's this whole thing about kids and gays and child molesting and it's replete throughout the culture And everybody, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people are still buying that And people are going to have things to say if there's a 12-year-old in lavender country. So let's talk. And they said, oh, we know all that We don't believe in that You know we don't believe in that We want Jack to have this opportunity. We want Jack and Lavender Country. We'd be honored.
0: Oh, that wasn't too hard to sell then. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I didn't hear about this until later. I didn't know the conversation <sighs> went down. I wouldn't have understood the issue at all anyway. So yeah. uh-huh.
4: You were 12 years old. Um, but they w- were insistent. Thank God. What a blessing that he is because... Jack, I need a bass player. Jack, I need a rhythm guitar player. Jack, 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 Jack. Every time I turn around, I'm screaming for Jack.
0: So we got the right guy on the show with you here. Yeah, the Jack and Patrick show. Yes, huh? Not to mention drums. Yeah. So drums and. Oh, I bass. forgot all about the drums.
4: Again? <laughs> Usually, yeah. Yeah, again.
1: Usually, he plays.
0: Usually he plays drums. Um, So I understand you're prepared to play some songs. We are. Excellent. This uh,
4: this first song is called Weeping Willow. And it's a gay song. And um, gay men who aren't having sex with one another have a tendency to call one another girlfriend. And um, I had a lot of girlfriends. in the Stonewall years. And one of them was named Bobby Campbell, and he was a real champion in the AIDS activism scene. And um, he died early on after contributing hugely to the anti-AIDS movement. And he was my best girlfriend. And he died in uh, 1983. we w- we'd have one fa- affair after another, and crash and burn, and crash and burn, and then go out and, and have another affair, and it wouldn't work out either, and a crash and burn, and crash and burn. It's a very common theme in the gay world, um, because men don't know how to love one another, because nobody taught us. So that's what this song's about, Bobby Campbell pulling me out of the hole again after another crash and burn. And I can't even remember who this crash and burn was about, or even remember his name, but I'll never forget Bobby Campbell. (laughs) So that's how that one goes. It's called Weepin' Willow, and it's about pulling me out of the hole again.
1: you like a in the weather. You got that long face on Are you still crying in your pillow? because your man done up and gone You haven't shaved in day You look listless and depressed You're either sleeping or you're in a huff Staring at the wall and sitting on your duff eyes are puffy and your nose stuffed up girlfriend you're just a mess did he throw you for a loop-de-loop did he take you for a ride Hit the land and skin the hide right off the girl on the backside lies that twirl you higher than a kite without a line like a hammer, with the glamour turn to flim flam, and the glitter turn to bitter chips of valentine, oh did it hit you like a hammer, with the glamour turn to flim flam, and the glitter turn to bitter chips of valentine. Like a weeping willow, don't you think it's time you quit this silly ball? Like a newborn
4: longhorn calf without a tit, you've been zonked
1: out long enough. Have one good cry, there. then. I reckon you're looking for some necking, yes I do. Climb right on up into my manger, but let me warn you about one small danger. I can't shake the stranger out of you. Prancing and dreaming smooth as you can. Hotter than the popcorn Dancing in the pan I have to capture A junk rapture With someone new I can hit the sack Like an aristocrat If you let me be a trick In a box and grab the jack But I can't change your lips are chomping at the fear i'll kiss you but who's gonna miss you when you're chasing midnight through? i'd be glad to be your one shot pleasure even To put a saddle on you and ride you higher on the fires of desire than you ever knew. All our favorite fantasies have come to an end. We'll be waking up tomorrow and needing a friend. It was like a straight.
0: that was wonderful. So how about the the new material that you came up with for the Blackberry Rose album?
4: So I had songs in my hip pocket um that had been sitting on scraps of paper in my desk for
0: decades. I know Gay Bar Blues, right? Was Gay Bar
4: Blues was originally part of the Lavender Country uh series and, and we wrote it at the same time the Clara Fraser song was old and some of the other songs were new to the album so it was a compilation of stuff that had been hanging around and stuff that was newly written
0: and you gave it the full like honky tonk outfit treatment sort of uh,
4: yeah like, well I'm or your producer? by then I was a lot more sophisticated with music
1: my best advice to you say you want to make up after all you put her through but don't buy her no more roses it won't do
0: so patrick uh can you tell me about your relationship with your father i know that that's a big part of your story it is a big part of the story I read something about uh, you. You were uh, you. You won a contest dressed as a cheerleader.
4: Well, it's like 1950s, and it's rural America, and you can only imagine the horror of what was happening to sissy kids, especially with their dads. Right. Uh, beating, mocking, derisive. Rejection, throwing them out of the house, calling them names. I missed. I missed it all um, because of my dad. I was clearly a sissy, and everybody in the family knew it by the time I was like five. Um, Pat's a sissy. We have to make accommodations for this. <laughs> we. Um, We're going to talk about this. It's not going to be a secret. And we're all going to work our way through this and we're going to love Patrick the sissy. That's what was going on at my house. Uh, My dad was old school. He was traditional Catholic. He was a bumpkin. He wore farmer brown overalls and was missing half of his teeth and Chewed Copenhagen snuff and um, was balding and was had a, an extremely gruff exterior. My father never denigrated me, never, not one time, ever. And I was wearing ballerina outfits, and he was helping me make blonde wigs out of baling twine, and he was putting up with me, running around with the girls all the time. I wouldn't ever shut up singing show tunes in the barn, and he put up with it all. And I really put him through the paces. I was a terrible farmer. Really bad. (laughs) And I was a wars mechanic. And he was a machinist. And there was all kinds of farm machinery. And when I was about 10 years old, I stacked up his tractor by running it into an alder tree, blew it up. And my father was standing in the field watching the whole thing happen. Did he yell at me? No. He said to my older brothers, look, if it's got a wheel on it, or any kind of other thing that goes whir, keep this kid off of it before he kills himself. That's what he did. And he was so right. And then he went to town, and he went and spent his last $25, and bought me a guitar, and brought it home, and said, here play this, and stay off of my machinery.
0: Wow. Yeah. Very fortuitous. Yeah.
4: I didn't have any trouble being a sissy in 1955 in Clollam County on the farm with all these loggers' kids. All because he imbued me with that self-confidence. I was president of every damn thing I ever wanted to be president of. And I was president of a lot. Like what? Like the 4-H club, like the sophomore class president, like the senior class president, like any office I ever wanted to run for. I won. I was college bound. That was clear. I'm, um, You know, you got to get the hell up out of this valley or you're going to starve to death. Quote, unquote, right? Uh-huh. Okay. So... That meant go get a scholarship. One of the things that you do when you go get a scholarship is you run for student body office. And I was only a sophomore, and I couldn't run for student body president. If I had run for student body president, I would have f***ing won. So I decided to run for head cheerleader. So I'm riding to school and at the, for the pep assembly, and I'm putting on my costume. My older brother is driving me because he had a job in town, and like he could get me there early so I could get ready to do this pep assembly. And I was putting on my costume, which was a lipstick smile about four inches wide from ear to ear. Oh, wow. And mm-hmm. glitter all over my face. And my brother said, What the, f- the hell are you doing? <laughs> and I'm putting on my costume. He said, I wouldn't be caught dead walking into the high school looking like that. And I said, Well, you wouldn't be caught dead running for head cheerleader either, so what's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> he dropped me off the high school and my glitter and lipstick smile. And he called my dad. And he said, um, They're going to kill your son this morning. You got to get up to the high school. So it was about 20 minutes later and I saw my dad walking down the hall. And he had his farmer brown boots on and his high top boots and there was cow crap spatters up to the knee and looked like a hick. And I, I, didn't, I didn't want a hick raining on my parade. <laughs> so I ducked him. In other words, I betrayed, <laughs> I betrayed this man who loved me so dearly. So we did the pep assembly, and I got up, and I did my little peppy-pat routine, and it was clear, very clear to everybody in the auditorium that I was going to win this election by a landslide, which I did. So I'm riding home with my dad after the pep assembly because it's bailing time, and I was supposed to be in the field all day, and he was the one that allowed me not to be in the field all day so I could go do the do that I was doing at the high school and run for head cheerleader. That part's important. He let me off of farm duties to go run for head cheerleader. And, and he said, uh, I thought I saw a kid look just like you, ducking out on his dad this morning when I was walking down the hall. But I knew it wasn't you because you'd never do that to your dad. <laughs>
0: hmm How'd that feel?
4: Uh, I was squirming in my seat. Yeah. And then he looked me right in the eye and he said, I'm sure glad it wasn't you that ducked out on your own dad this morning. At this point, I was speechless. Right. Because like, he's dressing me down good. And did I have a coming or what? And... I said, Dad, did you have to wear your cow crap pants to my pep assembly? (laughs) And he said, oh, well, I'll be plum, go to hell. Here I thought this was about what you were wearing, and it turns out it was about what I was wearing. (laughs) I, I understand perfectly. Now listen up. I'm a farmer, this is what I do. I'm proud of what I do. And I don't have time to change my clothes every time you kids get your ass in a sling at school and I have to come up there. I don't have time to do that and I don't wanna do it and I'm not gonna do it and there's not a reason for me to do it. Because I'm not ashamed of who I am and I'm not ashamed of what I do. Now we're going to talk about you. <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, were you proud of yourself with that glitter all over your face and that lipstick smile from ear to ear? And I said, well, I think I'm going to win the election. And He said, I know you're going to win the election. It's not what I asked you. I asked you if you were proud of yourself. You know I'm fifteen years old. I'm emerging into my sexuality and my manhood, and I'm befuddled and confused and and i don't know I don't know what to i don't know what to tell this man and he said uh, "You know I'm dying, which he was, and he was going to be dead within about a year and a half." And he said, you know I'm not going to be around when you're grown-up to help you deal with any of this stuff. You know that, don't you? And I said, yes, I know. And he said, well, I'm going to tell you something now. And you probably won't know what it means. But you'll know what it means when you're an adult. And I want you to remember. Because I'm not going to be here. Promise me you'll remember. Said, okay, I'll remember. He said... Who are you going to go out with at night when you're at the University of Washington Drama School? (laughs) And I said, I don't know. And he said, that's a damn lie. You do know. And it's not going to be that McLaughlin girl that I've been trying to get you to go out with, but you won't even pick up the telephone. I know it's not going to be her. Whoever you go out with at night, when you get to college, don't sneak like you did today. Because if you sneak, it means you think you're doing the wrong thing. And if you spend your whole life thinking you're doing the wrong thing and sneaking, you'll ruin your immortal soul. So don't sneak, okay? We're talking about a hayfield with a bumpkin and his sissy kid in 1958.
0: Who got that? Sure as hell wasn't on TV. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. It sure wasn't.
4: It wasn't. Anywhere. There wasn't one sissy kid in 1958 in any hayfield anywhere in America who got that. But I got it from my father, who loved me.
0: This has been a conversation with Lavender Country. Thanks to Patrick and JB for letting us record this in your living room, and to Jack Moriarty and his parents for participating. Thanks also to Jack Habegger and Miles Rosati for going on location and making this whole thing happen. Once again, if you'd like to hear the unedited version of this interview, you can visit lowprofilepodcast.com. There's a Patreon link on there as well if you'd like to help cover the cost of this show that is unprofitable by its very design. That's it for Season 3. It's been a wild ride, and I've learned so much, and I hope you can say the same. Please, share this episode with somebody who you think might like it. Thank you so much for listening. I love you. i file with Michael Morrison.